Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as always, with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Today, Father Stephen, let's talk about Gregory the Great. I think I've said a few times before on this program how much I admire the Book of Pastoral Rule, um, which is something that he wrote and that I always recommend anyone who's interested in discernment for ministry to read. Uh, So let's talk. Yeah, we're going to get back to one of our Church Fathers episodes. Um, So, and there are a lot of Gregories, as we know. Um, mm-hmm. but this guy gets to be called great, the great, the great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, but let's, let's, uh, get into it. Who also, who else gets to be called great? Uh, only one other is universally recognized by that title is Leo the great who actually preceded him. Uh, Leo was Bishop of Rome. He ceased, he died in 461. And so, uh, Gregory dies in 604. Those are the only two popes who are universally recognized as the great. Now, there's a third pope, but one of the Felixes, who got that title for a strange reason, but it's, it's a, a bit of trivia. No one knows that. So okay. the only ones who are universally recognized are, are Leo and Gregory. Okay. And uh, so he's, and this guy is a doctor of the church, right? Do you want to review yes. us really quick on how, why you get to be a doctor of the church in the classical sense? Yeah, in the classical sense, uh, we have the fathers of the church, but a doctor is the Latin word for teacher. You know, somebody who really teaches, especially one who deals with new, with new areas, you know, sort of uh, you know, the cutting edge. And in the East and the West, each one had four universally recognized doctors. Looking back, we said these were the ones who are really the, the go-to guys. Okay. And yeah. in the West, we have Ambrose. He was the one who converted Augustine. Jerome, who brought us the, um, the, the Latin Bible. The, the Vulgate, Augustine, of course, we all know Augustine is huge in the history of Western theology, and Gregory. Those mm-hmm. are the four great, he's the last of the four great doctors of the universally recognized traditional Latin thought. Now, later, the Roman Catholic Church made the, the Cater Doctrine of the Church a growth category. They have now something like 35 or something. Okay. Yeah. But for centuries, that wasn't so. You had four in the East and four in the West. Right. So let's, let's begin, I, uh, I guess, first, also, um, we'll, we'll be getting into especially why Anglicans have a special place in our heart for Gregory the Great, but we can get started with who, who, who was Gregory um, and, and why does he merit that title? Well, it's interesting, Gregory and his ba- uh, background. You know, like Gre- Gregory, I love this, is called Last of the Romans. Hmm. In a sense, you know, he really is a real pivotal, he's uh, one of those um, uh, hinge moments in history. He's really the last of the great Romans this way. Uh, his name, by the way, it comes from a Greek word for watchful or for alert. And a lot of people would talk about that, mention it in talking about him at the time, because he was, that so describes who he was, you know, in his, his pastoral capacity, his watchful and alert for the flock. Hmm. Gregory. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And it so described him, you know, like Irenaeus, we were talked about him in an episode and the guy was really a great reconciler. And it was, it was by sheer God's providence that he's called Irenaeus, which means peaceable, sort of uh-huh. like peacemaker. 
Uh-huh, yeah. So Gregory had a perfect name, the watchful one, the one who's on alert, watching out. He was born in the 6th uh, uh, century in 540 in Rome. And what's really neat about his background that made him perfect was his family had two different sort of career streams. He came from what is this called a senatorial family. His father was a Roman senator. Mm-hmm. So he came from a really a family that traditionally was a was in politics, you know, was basically in government. But he also had a church background. His great his great grandfather was Pope Felix the Third, and his mother and his pat- two paternal aunts ultimately were declared saints. Okay, and not by him. I mean, they were really very <laughs> holy people. So he has a family that was both really secular. I mean, they were really very successful people in the in the in the world of government. And also had a strong Christian background, okay. strong people in the church. And he has both. He's truly a man of action. I mean, from that senator side, boy, is he good at running things. He's a great administrator. And he's also a great contemplative. I mean, this guy was a man of prayer. I mean, deep time. And this guy really could uh, go into a completely different place. You know, he could be truly contemplative. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so how does he get his start? He starts off following his dad, and it's interesting. He becomes the praefectus urbis, which means the city prefect. That's the highest-ranking magistrate in Rome at age 30. Okay. That really was something people would talk about. 30? He already got there, and it wasn't through connections. And he served with great success for five years. The guy was really a talented. We'll see later when he becomes bishop. He's a really great administrator. Mm-hmm. He's really, really good. But he also had the other side. He felt this call to the church. So when his dad dies, that's why he leaves at the end of five years, his dream was to actually become a monk. Yeah. So he has a home, which you can still visit, by the way. I really recommend it to you. To me, it's a very special place. It's, uh, it's his home on the Salian Hill in Rome. It turned it into a monastery. You know, they have mm-hmm. these big Roman homes. He turned it into a Benedictine monastery. Yeah, yeah. Actually, he's so dedicated to Benedict, he wrote the only ancient life we have of Benedict. He had four, four books of stories about Italian saints that otherwise we would have lost, except for Benedict. And the whole one of those is devoted completely to Benedict. Okay. And that's what we know about Benedict. It's called Dialogues, book two. Okay, so this is another um, this is another asceticism fanboy. Oh, Lord, again. yes. <laughs> he loves this stuff. He's tireless. Uh-huh. Because the others aren't... The only book that has one saint is Benedict. Is book, the others, we have just endless Italian saints. Sure. You know, uh, from the... You know, and he established six other monasteries. He had vast domains. He was very, the family was very rich in Italy, and he set up six other monasteries. So this guy really is, you know, into this. He sets this monastery, etc. He's made cardinal deacon. Now we think, well, gee, don't you have to, you know, it wasn't like that. A cardinal was a, a special rank. You know, mm-hmm. you didn't even have, you could even be lay. Uh, you know, but he's a cardinal deacon. Okay. And he was sent, this is interesting, because he, because of his talents, the Pope says, I really need you to go on a very important, I need to be, um, they call it apocrisary, which it's what a nuncio would be for any place else. It, mm-hmm. the, this, the papal ambassador went to Constantinople, which is the center of the empire. Yeah. This is what he was called. He was basically the ambassador there for five years. Okay. That's a really, a plush, that's a really great post. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had to be really, because that was really a very important post. So he really trusted this guy with good reason. While he was there, this is not a guy to waste time. He brought some monks with him. He wrote a wonderful book, a commentary on Job called the Moralia. Mm, yeah. It's a yeah. book on, on the Job that I recommend to you. It's a good I've, book. I've read some of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. Then he comes back home to Rome after the end of the term. And the city's in a really bad place. Uh, there's a plague. 
there's a threat of famine, which is really hard because remember, ancient cities without food supplies coming brought in cannot support themselves from local agriculture. And there's flooding, the Tiber's flooding. He's elected in that environment, he's elected bishop in 590. Probably one of the reasons he's elected was because he was so competent administratively, as well as being very, very a man of God. He took his title, something that the popes to this day use. He's servant of the servants of God. Hmm. That's how you know that was the title. He wanted a title for himself. You know what was he? He's the servant of the servants of God. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people called you know council was a was a was a was a administrative post at Rome. People called him God's council. Huh. Okay. And he served for fourteen years. And during those years, you could just see all the stuff of how these two streams come together beautifully. How this is a tremendously competent man of action and a deeply, uh, deeply Christian man of prayer. Yeah. And how he brought yeah. this together. First of all, all the problems we talked about, he solved the, the, the famine problem. He took care of the plague problem. You know, he really got the city back in order through going through some hard times. And we think of the Gregorian chant. That goes back to the Gregorian reform of the liturgy. Yeah. So that's, that's, that he's the Gregory for whom Gregorian chant is. That named. is the Gregory. Gregory, his Gregory the first. Well, this is a, this is probably a good moment to bring up the music that, we use in Word yes. and Table. I've actually been quite a fan of it ever since I was young, ever since I was in high school for some reason. It was done by, anyway, it's a whole story. It's a guy named Richard Prue, who's sadly deceased. He's here in Chicago, and it's published by GIA Publications. It's a, a group I really commend to you. They do really authentic and um, very, very tastefully updated Gregorian chant. Um, but this this is where actually I, I love, um, I, I could actually jump in as you, Father Stephen, really quick and um because I'm such a fan of Gregorian chant, I, I learned that um, the the traditional story, uh, probably apocryphal story, is that uh, when Gregory started, you know, standardizing the liturgy according to music, uh, that it, he the tunes of it were supplied by a little bird that flew in through his window, apparently, and from the Holy Spirit and sang to him. So if you ever see a picture of a of an old guy writing and he's got a little bird on his shoulder, that's that's Gregory. But this is so dear to us as Anglicans, because we love Gregory, uh, not only because he, as we'll talk about, he sent the mission to England, but mm -hmm. it's so typical. He thought, you know, how we pray is how we believe was really important to make sure we, the liturgy is everything it should That's be. That's right. That's right. Really on solid ground because, it, you know, things had gotten a little weak. And so he really wanted to make sure we had a really solid, robust liturgy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He enhanced church discipline. You know, it's very important to make sure in this sense, like with the clergy and things, if they were doing their jobs properly, you know, there's proper discipline within the clergy. Boy, that would be an ongoing battle. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Another thing is really important, there's so many things with Gregory's an amazing man, is remember we have, a lot of people realize, one of the reasons Northern Italians look so different than Southern Italians is because they're Germanic people. The people are called the Lombards. Mm-hmm. And the Lombards came into northern Italy, and he looked upon them. He not only made peace with them, but he saw them as people to be fully incorporated as Christians and things. So he actually converted them. And he worked to, you know, to convert the Lombards, you know, and really bring them into the—he uh, had a heart for them. And this is before he even became Bishop of Rome. He had this heart. He wanted to personally go on a mission to England to convert the Anglo-Saxons yeah, who had invaded, yeah. invaded Britain. And he wanted to convert those people. 
the bishop at the time wouldn't let him go. He said, we need you here. But he never lost that. Now, once he became bishop of Rome, he couldn't leave. But he took monks from his own monastery back at home, the whole monastery he created. Mm-hmm. He sent Augustine who, uh, and 40 monks from that monastery to go have this, um, have this mission in England. Right, right. So, he's so this of, was before he became Bishop of Rome. He just felt called by God to do this. So he's sort of the Anglican Roman forefather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He also said there were troubles with Arianism in Spain and Gaul. So he said, we need to send missionaries out there, as, which he did. Mm. He worked against Donatism, which is a heresy in North Africa. Right, right. The same one that, that Augustine the fought same. against. And he also promoted the Benedictine Order. And this is really important because the Benedictines would be sort of our front line. They were the Marines of, of the missionary movement coming in from the South. Right, right. Southern Europe, the Benedictine order was for the front lines of mission North, just as the Celtic, uh, you know, things would be the mission, you know, um, mission coming down from the North. So it's basically, you know, the British Isles coming down from the North were coming up from the South. Mm-hmm. He also organized... The, the, the various land holdings of the papacy in central and southern Italy. And basically, uh, he basically created, you know, an organized unit that, you know, that would make, it, make, make the papacy a power to be reckoned with in the West. And this is going to be really important because in the East, because of the connection with the Roman Empire, the church was never free from the state. Right, right, right. It was yeah, always, about this. always with the state. But thanks to him, the, the papacy would have enough independence that it wouldn't be dominated by secular power. It would be a player. Okay, yeah. And also, he did have a thing. The, the Patriarch of Constantinople, since it's the official capital of the empire, wanted to claim the title. He was the universal patriarch, the ecumenical patriarch. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would not hear of this. He said, no, you are. No one appointed you. Who appointed you? You're not the patriarch of patriarchs. There are five patriarchs. You're just one of the five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One thing I really admire about him is that he was very incapacitated in his last years. To hmm. the point he couldn't stand up and things at times. And so he actually, he still did all his responsibilities. I don't know how he did it. And his sermons, which were very, he writes great sermons. I highly recommend them to you. Okay. So he didn't take a lot of sick days, is, is what Took you're no saying. no sick days. <laughs> Even when and he's he actually, on his back. since he, he actually had have somebody else read his sermons for him when he could no longer stand up. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Goodness. Goodness. Well, let's he, talk about... He, he, he didn't say, look, uh, I'm sick. I can't get out of bed. I'll just have to catch up on my judge duty. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. Well, uh, well, let's talk about what he wrote. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have a word or two to say about the book of pastoral rule. But let's talk about the writings he leaves. Uh, very rich writings. It's amazing giving everything he's doing. He per- by these, these influence have an untold effect on the Western church in the medieval West. Hmm. Everyone read these things. He wrote homilies. His gospel homilies are easily collections are available in all the major languages and things. Good, good translations are really good. They're fine homilies. He wrote the commentary on Job, they're called the Moralia. He wrote a nice commentary on Ezekiel. Yeah. Most famous is the pastoral rule. I'll let you jump in here. Yeah, I, you know, I think I've talked about it on the show before, but, you know, one of the things there's a, a it's just, <coughs> it talks about how um, spiritual office, you know, especially the, the presbyterate and the episcopate um it's he really he really scares you off in the first couple of chapters like he he talks pretty seriously about how it's something that requires much more of of you than you would if you weren't seeking it um but then the rest of the book is a very very helpful manual 
kind of on how to counsel different kinds of people. Um, and it's funny because I was reading it at the time that the, uh, the Enneagram, um, Christian-ish personality kind of Myers-Briggs thing was taking off. Our listeners might be familiar with some of that. Uh, and it was funny to me because I was reading Gregory the Great at the same time and his advice about how to counsel different kinds of people was, was, was similarly attuned to how people are disposed differently. It's, you know, each section is like how to counsel those who are over who are joyful and the melancholy or those who talk too much and those who talk too little. <laughs> that was my favorite one. And I know what side of that I fall on. Um, but it's funny because very unlike kind of modern personality sorts of uh, uh, quizzes and things like that, the object for him was actually to bend the stick back in the other way, the other direction. That if you're leaning too far in one uh, between one of two extremes, then you need to be pulled back toward the middle or toward the golden mean here. Um, so it's funny. It's actually uh, you reading it today. It's almost the opposite. It's not like you should, you know, you should really, uh, you know, accept and be proud of the way that you're disposed. He's kind of saying, well, actually, you should probably be watching out for the ways in which it's an obstacle uh, to being near to God and and kind of start to try and go back in in the other direction a little bit. So it's I, I really, really treasure the book. I, I, I'm always buying it for people. So um, his legacy lives on there. Well, that's an excellent um, disposition because, after all, it's a tradition in the Western Church to give a bishop at his consecration a copy of the pastoral rule. Ah, okay. Okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And also we have the dialogues, which were really popular in the East. In the Eastern Church, people love saints' lives, and these, especially with miracles. It's not the teachings and things. Most of us in the West, we like the, the stories that we could imitate of the life. The miracles, there are a lot on miracles here. And so that's why in the Greek church, they call them Gregory Dialogos. Mm -hmm. The Gregory, the dialoguer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is his name. And again, dialogue too is the traditional life of St. Benedict. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so great. So, I mean, that's, I guess, a good summary of why we can justifiably call this guy great, right? Uh, any other reasons? Well, uh, to give you an idea, is very often uh, being things as they are when you have to f wear a number of hats. When a, when a bishop of Rome would die, some people would go, thank goodness, now maybe they better get her shot. <laughs> yeah. Immediately and universally, he was venerated as saint as soon as he died. Okay. okay. So this guy was amazing. Also, uh, um, uh, one thing that's really interesting, Jaroslav Pelikan, the great uh, theologian, um, said this marks a great transition. He said, you know, the original theologians of the church for the most part were bishops you know mm -hmm. the, in patristic era that basically benedict or rather gregory marks the real switch because with gregory for the first time we have a bishop but he's also a monk hmm. Hmm. and from this time forward most of the theologians will be monks rather than bishops rather than practicing an actual pastorate okay they uh, they're religious professionals but they're not actually pastors i think you can really sense that in the theology Sure. Sort of, but he sort of marks the turning point. Just as later on, um, we have Martin Luther, who's a monk, who turns an academic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, interesting, interesting. And so we go to the academic theologian, which is really typical since then. You know, we think of theologians as people being in universities. So in the early church, our theologians were bishops. They were actually pastoral theologians. And we moved to monks. So he sort of marks a, a turning point there, the hinge. I see. 
And I'd say there's one quote I love, which just shows how practical Gregory was. He's talking to people who are out there converting pagans, and he says, you can't eliminate the past of the people you convert all at once. It's not by bounds that you climb a mountain, but with a slow and determined pace. Hmm. Yeah, that has a lot of missiological wisdom to it, doesn't it? Yes, it really does. It's almost as if in really recent times, we're kind of starting to rediscover some of that, some of that wisdom. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. <laughs>